We are continuing this morning in Paul's epistle to the Romans. And it's been a few weeks now since I've been with you in Romans. I think it's actually been four weeks. And so we'll see how the continuity goes here. But Romans chapter one. And uh, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Romans one. And would you please stand with me as we read the word of God together? Romans chapter one, verses one through seven. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, again, as we come before you this morning, we would ask, that you would show yourself gracious. Lord, give us understanding in your word. We know that your word is spiritually discerned. Uh, Father, these things are hidden to those who do not have the spirit of God to illumine the mind, to open the understanding. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come, fill us this morning as we proclaim and hear your word. May you be glorified, Father, in your people. May your people be edified and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we have a proper and right understanding of who he is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we saw last time, or the last two times, I should say, um, (laughs) we've been going I would say pretty slowly through this opening portion of Paul's epistle to the Romans, but intentionally so. This really is the groundwork which Paul is laying for the rest of the book, and it's important that we grasp its meaning. So we saw that Paul, who is a bondservant or otherwise translated a slave of Jesus Christ, was called to be an apostle, a sent one, one who would go with a message He, in fact, it said, was separated to the gospel or separated unto the gospel of God. This was his one job, his commission, his one task as he serves his master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says of this gospel, it has been promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is not a new message that Paul was preaching, but in fact, a very old one that was promised by God, as we saw, even before time began before the foundation of the world. And then, in time, in space, was delivered by God's prophets throughout the Old Testament in the Holy Scriptures. And we looked at a number of those examples last time of prophecies that point forward to the Messiah to come. And what we saw is really two things, that that Messiah would suffer and that he would afterward be glorified. And so we see that Jesus, after he had been risen from the dead, 
affirmed this central truth that all scripture speaks to him. All scripture points to him. He says, the scriptures are they which testify of me and that all things must be fulfilled that were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the threefold division of the Old Testament, meaning the entire Old Testament points to Christ. And so we take up this morning our text in verse 3 concerning him. Christ says this is all concerning him. The gospel is about him. And so look at verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, one thing I think that we'll see as we go through this together, Paul has packed a lot of meaning into a few words. And so my job this morning is to hopefully, Lord willing, unpack this uh, as best I can and be clear about what he is saying here. So concerning his son, the first thing that Paul emphasizes is really this idea of concerning, meaning Christ himself is the message of the gospel. He is the gospel. He is the center point of the gospel of God, the good news himself, the promised one, the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, as Paul defines in verse 16 of this first chapter. Put another way, the gospel is not about Jesus' teachings merely. It's not about following a good example. It is the person of Jesus himself. There are many who believe that Christianity is only about a, quote, relationship to God and living a particular kind of life, following good principles, the principles of Jesus. They call him a good teacher, a great teacher, and they think of him even as an enlightened man, But brothers and sisters, if we believe that it's only his teachings that matter, his examples that his example that matters, there's no Christianity. Christ, the person is crucial to this message because he himself saves us from our sins, which is really what separates us from our God. That is our fundamental problem. Because the wrath of God is upon every soul that remains in their sins. This is not so, this truth that Christ is central um, to Christianity, not so with other religions and belief systems. You can have Buddhism without the Buddha. You can have Mormonism without Joseph Smith. You can have Scientology without L. Ron Hubbard. But this is the one true gospel of God concerning his son, and there is no good news apart from him. And then Paul says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice the focus of these opening verses as we just review. He says, we have the gospel of God, which is God's good news, which he had promised through his prophets concerning his son. I'm emphasizing his because the message is all about God. It's a declaration that he himself is making. So when you hear Christian preachers talking too much about you or about man in general, that should be a red flag. There's a problem there. Christianity is not about us. It is God's declaration. 
And it's a declaration that he gives us that we might declare it to others, right? This is about God and his glory. It's not about us. If it were about us, brothers and sisters, it would be bad news. Why? Because it would be, as Paul says in Galatians 1, it would be a different gospel. And any other gospel apart from this gospel, though an angel of heaven were to proclaim it, is to be accursed, the Lord says through Paul to the Galatians. So there is only one gospel that saves, and therefore it behooves us to know what this gospel is and who this person is concerning which we speak. Concerning the Son, His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, the Son who was promised in the Old Testament as the salvation of the Lord, but who has now been revealed. Paul is declaring His name is Jesus. Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Notice he says, His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There are several identifying titles there, and they're all important. We see, in fact, the same phrasing of these titles used by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The scriptures are precise, brothers and sisters. We can casually pass over these things in our reading, can't we? But every word of God is God-breathed, we're told and therefore able to make us complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's take a look at each word, these titles. Who is this son, first of all? Well, some have said that he's a good man, as I said, an important historical figure, a, a great rabbi, even one that became a god through his life experience. Is he, as the Mormons teach, a created being, the, quote, spirit child, produced by the father and mother in heaven and the elder brother of all men and spiritual beings, including Lucifer, Satan, the devil? Or is he, as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, a created being that was actually the archangel Michael before he came to the earth as the man Jesus? Or is he, as the Christian scientists teach, just a man who embodied the ideals of perfection, but not God at all? So that's the question. Is he divine or is he simply a created being, a virtuous creature who is like God? C.S. Lewis once said of Jesus, you can shut him up, quote, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to, close quote. Lewis is saying you cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus. You either believe that he is the son of God, the Christ, and your Lord, or you reject him as a liar and as a devil, as the Pharisees did. Why? Because the scriptures pronounce him the son of God. Jesus himself claimed to be the son of God. And his enemies knew it. That's why they wanted to kill him. In the third century, there was a man named Sibelius, who was a leader of a group called the Gnostics. We've heard about the Gnostics as we go through the scriptures. They were a group who claimed to have higher knowledge about, um, 
about God and that only a small number of people could attain this knowledge, could understand it. And Sibelius taught that Jesus is of the same essence as the Father, which sounds orthodox, right? But what he meant by same essence is like the Father, similar but not truly the same as. And his example is just as the rays of light emanate from the sun and come from the sun and they are like the sun, they are not the sun itself. And so therefore these rays are of a lower order, of a lower level. And so he argued so too is Jesus of a lower level, a created being, not Christ, not God, excuse me, God himself. And the church condemned him as, an, as a heretic in Antioch in 267. Then later in 325, another heretic arose named Arius who claimed to be orthodox. And he taught that Jesus was like God in many ways, in purpose, in virtue, but he wasn't God, just a God-like creature. And the church also condemned him a heretic at the Council of Nicaea. You've heard of the Nicene Creed. That was the document that was produced as a result of this, um, this, this discussion. Listen, the deity, the deity of Christ has been attacked from the earliest days of the church, and it is precisely because the church has addressed the heretics head on and publicly denounced them as such that we have the creeds and the confessions in our heritage that we hold to this day. When we look at the teachings of the cults, there is nothing new under the sun, right? It's the same old heresy that we've seen from the beginning. It's just repackaged in new forms. So where do we go for our answer to this question on who the Son is? We don't go to human sources. We go to the scriptures for the answer. And Paul gives us the answer here. He says, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Concerning whose Son? God's Son. And what do the scriptures teach about the identity of God's Son? Well, they teach that God's Son is God. Is God. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 1. I'll bet a lot of the children even have this memorized. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The eternal Word of God, meaning the eternal thought in the mind of the eternal God, always was. And we're told that Keep reading. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Notice the word that John introduces, who was with God and who was God, is identified as not a thing, not a force, but a he. And he is the agent through whom all things were made. Very interesting because we see the same language used by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, where he says in verse 16, referring to Jesus the Son, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And if that weren't enough, we have the same language again in Hebrews chapter 1. The author to the Hebrews says this, God, speaking of the Son, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, and so on. 
So we see that the word is a he, and it is he who has created all things. It's also interesting to note in John 1, 1 there where it says, and the word was with God. That word with means face to face with God. The son, the eternal son was always face to face with the father. It is a he. It is a person. It is the second person of the Holy Trinity, father, son, and spirit. And so this idea of the word being a person, being Jesus Christ, makes sense because think about how Genesis begins. The opening account of our scriptures begins with God speaking into the world, speaking the world into existence with what? With his word. Now we know that his word is Jesus Christ, his son. Next, we're told his son, Jesus, Jesus, the word Jesus means savior. Names in scripture describe the character or the work of the person that they refer to. So Jesus is explained actually for us in Matthew 121. The angel tells Joseph and she, referring to Mary, will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall what? Save his people from their sins. So there it is. Jesus is savior. He, the word comes from the Hebrew name Joshua or Joshua which means the Lord is salvation. And just as Joshua was a type of Christ in the Old Testament, who was the captain who led the children of Israel into the promised land, so too is Jesus the Savior who leads all his people away from their sins and into the eternal promised land, heaven. Jesus the Savior. Next, he is Christ. His son, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title, his office. And the word is, is a Greek word for the Hebrew word, which is Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. So Jesus is his earthly name. Christ is his office. And Messiah is one who is anointed to do a special job. And that is to be savior of the world. He who would save his people from their sins. And as you recall from the Old Testament, the Messiah had three offices that he was to discharge. The first was as prophet. Jesus speaks the word of life to give knowledge of salvation to his people. He is a prophet. He is also priest. He's our great high priest. And as priest, he is he who mediates between God and men by offering a sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice the sacrifice of himself to God to atone for, to pay for the sins of his people. And thirdly, as king, he rules. Jesus rules and reigns over his people in his kingdom, which is now. It has been inaugurated. He rules in the hearts and the minds of his people. And he has all authority in heaven and earth, we're told. And he also has authority over all his enemies and will one day have all his enemies put under his foot, including the last enemy, death. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Lord. This name, Lord, is ascribed only to God in the Old Testament as the sovereign one, the sovereign one. This is also, as you might recall from Philippians 2, the name above all names that is given to Jesus in his exaltation by the Father after he had humbled himself by taking on flesh and becoming a man. 
he is exalted and given the name Lord, Sovereign One. We read in our call to worship this morning, I am the Lord and I will not share my glory with any other, right? But he shares his glory with Jesus Christ. And that tells us Jesus is Lord. He is God. Because God will not share his glory with any other. He shares his glory among himself. So Paul wants us to be clear. This Jesus is God because he shares the same title uniquely ascribed to God. And notice also this personal pronoun, our. He is our Lord. Paul started this letter by confessing himself a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ, which is to say Jesus is Lord. Here, Paul says the good news concerns Jesus Christ, our Lord, meaning we also are his slaves, right? We have a unique relationship to Christ. He's not only our Savior, he is also our Lord. You may have heard of the salvation lordship controversy. Uh, it's been written about. John MacArthur wrote a great book about it. Um, I believe it was called The Gospel According to Jesus. But it's, this has been going on for a long time. I heard a, a preacher mention this in the year 1955. And he said, it basically, it says this, the salvation lordship controversy says you can take Jesus as your savior, but you don't have to take him as your Lord, at least not right away. He can be your savior. In other words, you can be saved, but not obey him. There are people who believe that Jesus is like a fire insurance policy to keep you out of hell. But in practice, they don't obey him, which shows that Jesus is, is not Lord of their lives at all. And I would not hesitate to say, brothers and sisters, that anyone who claims that Jesus is Savior but is not obedient to him, to follow him, is not saved. Plain and simple. If he has saved you, he has saved you unto holiness. To be transformed into the likeness of his son. That's called sanctification. If you are not one who obeys Christ and practices holiness as the pattern of your life, then you're just as those people as those people that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7, where he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And then look what he says here. You who practice lawlessness. It's not enough to call him Lord if you practice lawlessness. I'm not talking about uh, perfectionism. We all sin. But there is a fundamental question that we should each ask ourselves. Are we following as a pattern of life righteousness? Do we desire righteousness and holiness? Love what God loves and hate what God hates? Or are we unchanged in our hearts and we just love our sin? We might feel sorrow and remorse over our sin from time to time, but fundamentally we don't repent. We don't turn from it. We continue in it as a practice. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you don't obey Christ, you show you don't really love him and you're still in your sins. Those who are born again have had the love of God poured out in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, as Paul will tell us in the fifth chapter 
of Romans. So the good news is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then notice this next phrase, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So now that Paul has properly identified Jesus as the Christ and as Lord, he gives us additional instruction about the true identity of Jesus. And he says here some very important theology. He tells us who Jesus really is. And he says this, Jesus is someone who has two natures in one person. Listen, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, that refers to his humanity. And declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. That's his divinity. Or if you like it, he's fully man and he's fully God. So first, let's take the humanity of Jesus. And this may actually be all we have time for today, but let's see how we do. The humanity of Jesus. He was born, we're told. We already established that Jesus is the eternal word and the eternal son of God. He was never created. But here Paul tells us that he was born. So what are we to make of that? Well, the word born can also be translated was made. He was born of the seed of David or was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And that Greek word for born or made is a word that means to arise. It means to come on the scene, to come onto the stage of human history, if you will. You see, unlike us, Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born on the earth. It's very important. Jesus already was. He was in existence as the eternal son, but he didn't always have a human body. That's the key. His human nature was made. It was formed. And he came upon the stage of human history as a baby, as a baby boy. Listen to John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal word became flesh. He entered space and time. And that word for flesh is the Greek word sarx, which means um, humanity. There's two words in Greek that refer to body or flesh. Soma refers to the body, like somatic you might have heard of, or psychosomatic. That refers to the body. Sarx or sarka is the word that refers to his flesh, meaning his humanity. So he became flesh, became humanity, and dwelt among us. The Chalcedonian Creed puts it like this. The Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in the Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. See, they were very careful to articulate each of these aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a real person. He had a real body. He had a real soul. He had a mind. He was, he was able to think and reason as we are. He was not a phantom body, as some heretics have taught. John says he dwelt among us. That word is amazing. In the Greek, that word for dwell is the word tabernacle. He wrapped himself in a human body. It's another wonderful proof that Jesus is God. Do you remember the tabernacle in the wilderness was erected? God gave instructions for how to build basically this tent in the wilderness. And what was the purpose of the tent of the tabernacle? But that God should have a place to dwell with his people. And so here, what is John signaling when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt 
tabernacled among us. He's saying Jesus is the true tabernacle. He is God in the flesh come to dwell with men. Or take Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6. He says this, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. A son is or a child is born, a son is given, given from heaven. Or take Paul in Galatians 4, 4, he says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born or made of a woman, born under the law. Notice, God sent forth his son, <laughs> sent forth again from heaven, from eternity to earth. Or take Zechariah. The father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter one, he says this of Jesus, the day spring from on high has visited us. You see, Jesus always was. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity, the son, the eternal son of God who has come in the flesh to visit us. And how was Jesus born? Well, we're told in the scriptures of the miraculous birth of the Virgin Mary. In Luke 1, in fact, we have an account of the angel Gabriel being sent by God to a virgin named Mary who was betrothed, meaning he was promised. He was to be married, but he wasn't yet married to Mary. Betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Notice the connection with David. In fact, both Mary and David were in the house with a line of David. And so the son comes in the seed of David, according to the flesh. And Gabriel tells Mary that she has found favor with God and that she will conceive in her womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Now, <clears throat> for those who don't know, maybe the children, a virgin in scripture is someone who's never been married. And so someone who hasn't been married and, was at, and is without a husband would not be able to have a child. And yet... What is impossible with man is possible with God. Amen. Turn to Luke chapter one, if you would, and just I'd like you to follow along with a couple of these verses. Luke chapter one, starting in verse 31. Luke 131. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So the virgin will conceive. And what are we told about her son? He will be called the son of the highest. Son of the highest, literally son of the most high God. Now, what's interesting is later in this chapter, in verse 76, I believe, John the Baptist is called the prophet of the highest. The prophet of the highest. But notice, the son of the highest is reserved for Jesus Christ alone. It is unique to him because he is the son of God and God the son. Also, we are told that Jesus will receive the throne of his father, David, and that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is no mere man we're talking about. Men don't live forever. This king will live forever. This Jesus must be God because he lives forever. 
And sure enough, this is another fulfillment of the prophecy of Nathan to David that you see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, in Matthew's gospel account, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream to announce that his bride-to-be is going to give birth to a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen to Matthew as he says this, and this is Matthew one twenty-two. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us. That quote from the prophet is the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 7:14. And he tells us the son is Emmanuel, God with us. God in the form of a babe, God and man together in one person. Two natures, one person. Charles Wesley famous hymn that we sing every Christmas. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, right? God with us. And then we're told how the virgin will conceive. Look at verse 34 of Luke 1. Then Mary said to the angel Gabriel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. There is tremendous significance in these verses. First, because the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary and act upon her to form the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ in her womb. What does that mean? That means that the original sin of Adam which condemns us all, is bypassed, is bypassed. This is the significance of the virgin birth. Jesus was sinless because he didn't have the sin of Adam. He wasn't the son of Joseph. He was the son of Mary, who is the husband of Joseph. Excuse me, Mary, who was to be the bride of her husband-to-be, Joseph. But he, Jesus, was conceived of the Holy Ghost, of the Holy Spirit. He is called the Holy One who will be born and shall be called the Son of God. Um, the second thing is, it shows us that while Christ was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, he also was deity because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So first of all, the sin of Adam is bypassed. Jesus is sinless. Second, Jesus is God because he's conceived directly by the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. And third, it's a great reminder that salvation can never, never come through human effort. Salvation can never come through human effort, but must be the work of God himself. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary was being acted upon by God. And so it is in our salvation as well, right? God acts upon us. He regenerates us from within. He calls us. He gives us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand the word, and to trust and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Previously, I mentioned um, the word proto-evangelion, right? The first gospel. And the first gospel account that we have in Genesis chapter 3. This 
is God fulfilling his promise from Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would ultimately destroy the serpent. And God is bringing it about by his own power. His name is Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Something else to consider that points to the deity of Christ. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What did the Spirit do at creation? We're told that he hovered, he overshadowed the waters, or your translation might say the deep. And what did he do by hovering, by overshadowing? Well, he brought order out of chaos. He brought formlessness. Here at the conception of Jesus, the spirit, we're told, overshadows Mary in order to form the humanity, the baby, the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But notice the Holy Spirit took what was already existing. Jesus from all eternity was already all the Spirit did was form him into his humanity. He brought form out of formlessness as he did at creation. So he did with the Virgin Mary. So what do the scriptures tell us about, going back to this idea of born, that what was the location of the birth of Messiah? Well, the scriptures tell us that he was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And why does Luke, the writer of the, of the Gospel of Luke, spend so much time on the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem, we know, is the city of David, the king of Israel. And the Jews knew that their Messiah was to come from the seed of David. In fact, they are still waiting for him, sadly. The scriptures tell us that the reason why the Jews don't see Jesus as their Messiah is because they have minds that are blinded. They have a veil that's been placed over their hearts. So they don't understand. They don't see him. That veil is only turned away, taken away in Christ. Incidentally, the Jews don't even have the genealogical records anymore to prove their Messiah is of the seed of David. They were all destroyed when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. When Titus Vespasian laid waste to the city, he burned it up. And as part of that burning, those gene genealogical records went. They burned. You remember how Joseph and Mary went from Nazareth to Bethlehem to be registered in the census? Because they were of the line and lineage of David. So even if someone came along today and claimed to be the Messiah, the Jews have no way of proving it because they, have, they don't have the records. But our records are preserved in the scriptures, praise the Lord. And we have Matthew's genealogy. We have Luke's genealogy to trace the Lord Jesus Christ back to David and to Abraham and to Adam. The gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And then we should consider the conditions under which Jesus was born. Right? We say he was born of a virgin. He was born in the city of David in Bethlehem. Under what conditions was he born? Well, by the time Jesus was born, the line of David had fallen into obscurity. Um, we're told in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, 
who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Or take Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 2. He says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Why is Jesus referred to as a root out of dry ground or the root of Jesse? It's because the line of David was no longer a full, big, glorious tree when Jesus came. Only a root had been left. But it was left. That's the point. It was preserved by God for the Messiah who would enter this world in obscurity. He didn't come as a great king with fanfare and procession, did he? We're told that he had very humble beginnings. He was born in a manger, a place where animals were fed in a trough because there was no room for him in the inn. And so we are left to see him through the eyes of faith. He has no comeliness, no form that we should desire him, Isaiah says. He looked like an ordinary Jewish man. You wouldn't be able to pull him out or uh, identify him out of the crowd as a king or as the Messiah. He wasn't the tallest and the most handsome like Saul was. He just fit in as an ordinary Jewish man. But he spoke with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees, even though he had no formal training. Because this teacher was the Holy Spirit, God. So we see Paul's emphasis here on the seed of David. And, and why is he doing that? Why this, this focus on the seed of David? Well, to demonstrate that God has fulfilled the promise that he made to David. God made a great promise to David about his son. Not about Solomon, who was his direct son. But looking forward to the Messiah, to the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would sit on the throne of David forever. And again, you read that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, so he is concerning, excuse me, the gospel, the good news is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And we talked about this, according to, to the flesh, kata sarka, meaning not his physical body, but his humanity. So Jesus is both God and man. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 says this, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, there's that phrase again, katasarka, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He is the son of David, the true son of David, the true king of Israel who lives and reigns forever. In closing, brothers and sisters, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And there's some wonderful truth that Peter gives us about the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of David. Look at Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 29. <clears throat> Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ 
that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. This promise is for you too, friends. That if you believe, if you repent and be baptized. How? In the name of Jesus Christ. You see the focus on the person of Christ, his identity, who he is. That's why we're going through this as slowly as we are. It is critical that you know this Jesus that you profess, that you believe in the Jesus that scripture teaches. Because again, any other version of Jesus is another gospel and there's no saving power in it. Paul in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. That is our great hope. Lord willing, next week we will continue to take this up and look at the second half of this verse where Paul is uh, contrasting the flesh with the spirit, the human nature of Christ, with the divine nature of Christ, declared to be the son of God, excuse me, concerning his son, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he is the eternal word the eternal son of God who has been face to face with you from all eternity. And Lord, you have graciously given him to us. You have conceived a plan of redemption in your wonderful mind. And the son has willingly taken up the role of the son, subordinated himself to the will of the father and come to this earth in the form of a baby, as a man, in the flesh, in his humanity, that he might adequately represent us as high priest, the only mediator between man and God, who alone can understand all our shortcomings, all our sin, all our temptation. For he was, the scripture says, tempted in every point like we are, yet without sin. He is that perfect bridge between God and man. 
And there is no other, there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which, whereby we must be saved. But the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who is exalted, he humbled himself, completed the work you gave him to do, and you have exalted him and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we praise you. Your wisdom is infinite. Father, we can't fully understand this mystery of Jesus, one person and yet two natures, 100% man, 100% God in one person. But Lord, we don't need to understand it fully. All we need to know is that you have said it and you have taught it. You have demonstrated it in your word. And as such, we embrace it. We believe it by faith because you have given us your faith. Lord, thank you for your mercy to each one of us in turning us away from our sins, not giving us what we deserve, which is your wrath, but instead giving us your grace, pardon for sin and a peace that endures because we have the promise, eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.